those who are unbaptized, catechumens, that is, uh, for many centuries were excluded from mere being in the presence of assisting at the Mass. Mm. They were dismissed at one point, it's said. So uh, those who take holy water are those who have been baptized, those who have been baptized are those who have the right of access into the house of God, um, which is a place of privilege, a place of, place of gift. Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show is another in the series of Where Is That in the Bible? Uh, when we had our Why Be Catholic series, several people came back and listed off a whole range of things they thought were Catholic teachings, but weren't actually in the Bible. So we have been creating a series of episodes on various Catholic teachings and where they fit in the Bible. I'm joined today by Father Paul Rouse. Welcome, Father. Thank you, Peter. Great to be with you again. Thank you. And Father's just finishing up his uh, degree in Scripture at Oxford University, but happily here in beautiful, sunny Sydney. Correct. Yes, yeah. No, nothing like a Sydney winter to remind you of how good things are in Australia. Indeed, indeed. And speaking of Australia, uh, no, I shouldn't say that. Um, I was going to say we're going to talk about sin today, but that's not very nice. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Speaking of Australia, on to sin. Yes. yes. <laughs> I was thinking convicts, but that's not really fair because the convicts very rarely had done much wrong. <laughs> That's right. And so much of it is about justice, my goodness. Indeed, indeed. Stealing a loaf of bread and so Yes, forth. it seems yes, the entire yeah. of Australia began with mistreating people and the way we treated the Indigenous folk, uh, the way we treated the convicts, there seems to be very few people who weren't mistreated somewhere in Australia's history. Mm. Not that I was comparing those two, by the way. Okay. But um, in any case, back to the story about sin and, and um, baptism, because these things are a point of difference between us and some Christian communions. Not the original reformers, by the way, um, Luther and um, uh, many of the, all the Lutheran church agree with the Catholic church on baptism in many respects, um, although perhaps not quite on sin. Uh, and it was only when Zwingli and other kind of more evangelical reformers uh, came in that they started to baptise not to refuse to baptise infants. And in fact, Zwingli didn't even approve of this. There's a, a very sad story of where some Anabaptists wanted to push for uh, adult baptism and uh, Zwingli was involved in the um, drowning of them. He, as in, they literally said, if you want to be baptised, you go, they were drowned in a lake. Oh, so dear. it's a, just a horrid sort of war time thing. Oh. So the the main reformers. It's a joyful way to start this yes, one. It is, it is, yeah. it is. The main reformers <laughs> were very much in favour of infant baptism, even if they expressed it in a sinful manner. Let's come back to the Bible and sin. Um, first, obviously, the first point of call is, is uh, Genesis 3, where sin enters the world, so to speak, through uh, that account without making it. Uh, a kind of a mechanical, literal story. For those people listening, we're not suggesting that the apple was in some way physical and became evil. You know, the whole world became evil because of a piece of fruit. Um, as St. Jerome, in his lovely, delicate way, says, what kind of idiot believes it was a, an apple tree or, or a tree? <laughs> in other words, it's symbols. <laughs> All of these things are symbols uh, for a deeper reality. Jerome. Never a man gifted with patience is Saint. No, Jerome. no, no. He gives me great hope because he's a saint who was impatient, <laughs> irascible, and didn't get along with anybody, and yet still is a saint. So I have, I have some hope. Right, right. right. something to aspire In, to. Well, no, I don't know about aspire to, but certainly hope <laughs> <laughs> that my grumpiness may not prohibit me from heaven. The um, 
Ah. The the sin of Adam and Eve is very much about the rejection of God as God. They're trying to be God themselves. You will be like God is the temptation of uh, the serpent in the in the garden. Now, this comes back to, I mean, when I go through the Ten Commandments with my students in Old Testament, pretty much every sin is this one. Every sin is the original sin in the sense that we say to God, God gives us these are the ways in which to love, the dummy's guide to love, the Ten Commandments. How will I love you, Father? I will not kill you. That's a good start. I won't <laughs> steal from you. I won't slander you. I won't treat you as an object. I won't um, covet your things and therefore poison our relationship. So there's, there's this practical guide to how we treat other human beings, in other words, how to love. And Israel was very proud of this. They said, Isn't it, what other nation has got so great a law that we can that we have that God has given us? This wasn't a restriction for them. It was a like they had the secret handbook to love. It was amazing. But when we decide um, that we know better than God, that's when we break a commandment. Thank you, God, for your suggestions on life and how I should live. But I think I know better today how to love. I think it's more loving to hurt someone or kill them or more loving to commit adultery or more loving to lie or slander or something like that. And when we do that, we're essentially saying that we want to be God, not God. I think a lot of people would say that it's not that they think that killing someone is more loving, uh, but certainly that they had a a good proportional reason for doing it. Oh, sure. I remember there's a priest saying that basically everyone who sins is a proportionalist, that is that they have some, they excuse themselves on the basis of the reason. Well, St. Augustine said Uh, that nobody sets out, wakes up in the morning and goes, what evil can I do today? They, um, (laughs) (laughs) I hope he said it with that accent. That's just (laughs) I don't know. He spoke in Greek. So um, (laughs) St. Augustine um, suggested that everyone sets out to do something good and evil happens Mm -hmm. when we try to do something good, but at the expense of uh, the damage of some other good. Right. The choosing of a a lesser good. That's right. uh, A a good that is merely good for me as opposed to an objective good. Yeah, sort of. I mean, what's some good examples? If I... Um, I want to get married. I see a pretty girl. I really like her. Uh, so I go and kill her husband in order to marry her. Probably an extreme example, but you know what I mean? So in other words, I'm seeking one good at the expense of another. Well, cheating, cheating on a test or an exam, right? This is exams and assessment season around the country. So, uh, you know, someone saying, well, I, I have to pass this exam in order to get my degree so I can have a good career, so I can provide for my family. Now, well, everything after that is fine, except that it begins from a, a bad route, which is cheating on the exam. Yeah, so the means by which we do something good can, in fact, make it evil. Certainly. Yeah, so having good intentions doesn't make something good necessarily, but you can also do right. something that's objectively neutral or, or good with evil intention and, and mess it up that way too. Oh, sure. That's pride, isn't it? Well, it's so one of the, to do the, one right of the thing possible for the wrong evil reason. intentions, yes. Mm. Yes. So to feed the hungry because I want to look great, I want to, you know, look oh, at me, yes. I'm awesome. Right. Be seen to pray, yeah. as the Lord t- tells us in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. yeah. So if there's someone on the side of the road and they say, can I have a dollar, throwing a dollar at them makes me feel good or at least less guilty. And, um, you know, it's convenient because I don't have to care. I just walk on. Uh, or maybe if I spend time to sit down and talk to them, that's quite a different thing. It's awkward. It's it's painful. It, it you know, costs me more in terms of my – Costs me, yeah. exactly. 
Now, coming coming back to sin in the Bible, that this relationship breakdown becomes evident all the way through the Old Testament, and that it, the fact that it costs is a big deal. The ransom that's paid for the redemption of sin it comes through in the sacrificial rituals in the Old Testament, so the sacrificial rites in in especially in Leviticus and Exodus, and all of these sort of sacrifices lead up to the cost of sin which is something we need to talk about with respect to baptism because the, the Jewish people were constantly coming to this this relationship with God and constantly offering sacrifices to pay the cost if you like of sin that in a sense is a, a form of justice because forgiveness is not just saying everything's okay it's no. okay that you hurt me no it's not okay no. but i forgive you meaning that I have accepted that you want to repair the relationship and we're working towards fixing the damage done. Yes. I, I, when the prodigal son crops up as the gospel passage in Mass, I always make the point that the, the younger son, when he returns, doesn't get half again of the estate. He has to build it up from scratch. Indeed. So he get what, what he gets is the relationship, the love, the place in the father's house. Uh, the, the thing that he spent is gone. Indeed. Uh, so he has to repair his life. You've made me want to go into that particular uh, parable because um, I think it should be called, and many people agree, the parable of the two lost sons because in both cases the sons both yes. believed themselves to have been slaves of the father rather than his sons. Yes, I, wonder, I often wonder how that came about. Why did the Lord think of the two sons in that respect? I suppose he looks at from his sinless life and sees all humanity labouring under sin, which he's going to redeem by his cross. Mm. But how- what this is emphasising, I think, is that the relationship is the key here. It's not whether we've done yes. certain things and there's a black mark against our name. It's about the relationship. Right. In, in my marriage, it's not about, you know, counting the number of times I didn't do this or did that. It's about the effect it has on the relationship. And Yes, or, or to see how, th- how bad the relationship has become, yes. uh, damaged it's become because of the number of times I've done a certain thing. So that the that net effect is, is the damaged relationship because of the, the quantity of sin. Yeah, uh, the- so the, in the case of the prodigal uh, son, you have two sons, both of one of whom seems to be with the father. He has spent his whole life um, in the father's household, and the other one has said, stuff this, and he's run off with all the money and blown it all on the bad things. Now, he's the classic sinner, the one you can see visibly as the black sheep, and he's run off and done bad things, and he's come crawling back, interestingly enough, not with genuine penance. He's still trying to be self-serving. He's not trying to come back and say, forgive me, Dad. He's just saying, make me a servant because I know your servants get more than I've currently got. He's still trying to milk Dad for a bit. And he, and the things that he wants from his father after the, the son returns are quite uh, minimal and miserable things. Yes. He thinks his life is, is never going to improve beyond what he currently has. Yes, but he's still, he wants a goat. He's still... It's not the fattened, not a fattened animal. That's right. He just wants a goat. And, and, he wants his friends to be around, not any of his father's family. That's right. So he, he, he still, the older son, still sees himself as someone deprived. In fact, he seems to see himself in the very same way the younger son did, except that he had held out all this time in this horrible relationship, hoping for some sort of reward, and he's resentful of the young fellow who came back and did what he precisely wanted to do, but held out because he thought he had a better reward coming. <laughs> Right. I think this is a, yes, exactly. a parable of of the 
uh, many people in the church who kind of tick the boxes and go to church and, and are, are holding out for some sort of better status with God. God is universally merciful. And in fact, the end of that parable ends with neither of the sons having given an answer to the father. The father's invitation is to both of them to come in, but we don't hear the answer from both of them um, because the, the, the question is put to us all, come in and enjoy the free, beautiful love of the father. Right. right. Now, what stops us from being with God is our choice, our sin, because lots of people talk about God rejecting people, but God actually wants us he will do anything to get us. In fact, in the 23rd Psalm, you say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. It's the word persecute there. Mm. Goodness follows us and pursues us and, and hunts us down and gives us, with any chance God gets, he tries to give us mercy. But while we reject that, God will not override our free will. God cannot uncreate what he has created. He's created us with free will and he won't override that. So if you don't want God, he won't take you. And therefore, the only thing that can prevent you from his grace is if you won't let him forgive you. Yes, exactly. I, I think of the rich young man who, when he's presented with the, the demands for his future life, goes away sad. So the, Christ invites him to a new form of life in which his perfection, his holiness is revealed to him, is, is clearly seen. But he goes away sad because he can't accept the invitation. Indeed. Uh, he, he's re really circumvented himself. And, now, now, and some people say, why can't you accept me as I am? Uh, one of my very right. best friends was an alcoholic, and he gave me that very line. Why can't you just accept this as who I am? And I said, I love you in every way, and I accept you, and I won't condemn you, but this is killing you. And yes. we must, must, if we want the best for you, we want to bring you out of this particular poison because it's killing you. And because I love you, you I, I have to, have to constantly bring you back to that. Now, gr gratefully, right. that, that situation is now uh, very much resolved and I still have a very dear friend with me. But mm. my point is, is that sin poisons us and it doesn't just poison us in terms of this life. It poisons, poisons our relationship with God. It poisons our relationship with other people. And if we love people, then we... Firstly, we welcome them, we love them, we affirm them, and we say, yes, we are also sinners, and yet come to the place where healing is possible. Yes. I wonder if we could talk about baptism then. Where does it, this fit with sin? Yes. So it, it's an extraordinary sacrament given that it's something we take over from the practice in Israel of various washings. You'd know more about this than I would, but uh, given that the the practice is already there with John the Baptist, who is baptizing away from the temple, this is the the revolution, if you like, in in Jewish uh, washing, that one can receive or at least express one's uh, repentance uh, through a ritual washing away from the temple. That's that's the beginning of how Christian baptism emerges because it's it's about receiving the gift of forgiveness wherever we are. It's the original sacrament of forgiveness. It is, and it, it demonstrated a complete change from a former life. It demonstrated that things had changed in the person. It transforms them from one style of life, one direction, if you like, and the other. So when John and Jesus both teach a baptism of repentance, Repentance, it's worth just going into that word and what baptism and repentance mean. The word repent in Greek, there's two words for repent. Um, one is metanoia, which means to change mind. It's a total change of mind. 
And the other one is epistrepho, which literally means to turn on the spot, face the other way and go the other way, uh, which, which probably translates the Hebrew shuv, which means to turn around and go back. Um, both of them mean a physical turning around and moving in a different direction. So when we talk about baptism of repentance, we mean that it's not that we say everything before was evil because when we baptize a baby, they haven't had a chance yet to do much except poop and cry. But the point is, is cry. we're all born with that inner rebellion in us and to, and yeah. as soon as possible, we bring God's grace to us, to, us, uh, to those we love um, so that they can turn and face God and go in that direction of that relationship. Yeah, so that that relates also to the, the gift of grace, somewhat working in someone's life right from a, a young age, as early as possible, uh, so that they can make that choice in an adult or ma- more mature faith. Indeed, uh, we we give our children the gift of baptism so that they have the equipment to choose, they have the knowledge that they can choose, rather than any kind of brainwashing. Indeed, and and to, well, grace takes a hold in someone's life, and it's very definitely there from then on. But what I wanted to point out is that right. baptism isn't just a one-off event. We say, I am baptized so that I have received the grace of baptism. Christian life is constantly coming back to that grace, back to that baptism. When we enter the church as Catholics and as some other Christians, you reach out. As you enter, the very first thing you do is touch holy water and make the sign of the cross. Now, this is not just some sort of mindless ritual. It is about we're claiming the grace of our baptism. We say, We're entering the King of Kings, the the hall of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're entering the Holy Sanctuary. We claim to do so by the power of our baptism, by the grace that we've been received as his son. Yes. To to add to that then, the the grace of baptism follows us because we have the right of entry. So those who are unbaptized, catechumens that is, uh, for many centuries were excluded from me being in the presence of assisting at the Mass. Mm. They were dismissed at one point, it said. So uh, those who take holy water are those who have been baptized. Those who have been baptized are those who have the right of access into the house of God, um, which is a place of privilege. One thing worth talking about there is we've used the word holy, and the word holy often gets misused as if it's some kind of glowy, magical kind of thing. If you have holy water, you know, I don't know, it, it makes vampires run away or something like that. But basically, <laughs> holy simply means. I've never seen a vampire near a church. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> proof, proof of concept. Okay, <laughs> proof positive. Yes. Um, yeah. My point is that holiness in the Old Testament is quite clearly from the word to mean to set aside something for a particular purpose. Holiness uh, is quite a mundane concept in the sense that it's set aside for God. Now, what it means though is that it takes on the characteristic of being set aside for God, so you don't misuse it. But holiness is not some sort of glowy, um, magical property of something. It simply means that when we say holy water, this water is set aside for this particular use, which is God's use. And because it's used for God, that we can't mess with it. We, we use it. The two ways to mess with something holy is to use it inappropriately, just as if it were not holy, set aside for God. Or the other way is to just simply look at it and go, wow, holy, instead of using it for what it's for. And so when we talk about the uh, the elements, sorry, the sacred, um, like the chalice, for example, for the Eucharistic chalice, it's holy in the sense that it's been set aside for Mass. Yes. In, in a sense, then, God has a claim on mere natural or, or material yes. things. 
so we, we bless water, a natural element, but that takes it out of a mere natural realm into a, a supernatural right. one. And, it, uh, and it's not that there's some sort of magical property to it. It's simply that it is dedicated or okay. set aside for the, God, for the use that God has for it. And when you mess with it, you mess with God. Or when you use it for what God exactly. wants, it has that, that the potency of God's own power. Now, the reason I praise that is that baptism consecrates us. Exactly. So that, that was the point I was going to make, is that once we are baptised, that same claim is made in respect of us. God has a claim on yes. us. We are set aside for God. Uh, so when we mess with our moral lives, say going back towards sin again, uh, we are messing with something that God has possession of. Yes. So restoring it in through other means, through through confession, through prayer, through almsgiving, etc., all these things uh, restore that claim, restore the, the clarity of that claim over Indeed. Us. And if we could push this point a little further, that means that there's a slight difference in the way St. Paul deals with people who are not baptised and outside the church and people who are inside the church. He, he holds people in the church to a higher standard of behaviour because they have set themselves aside for God and to represent God's name. It's the same as Israel in the Old Testament. Israelites were held to a higher standard than other nations because they bore the name of God. Everyone looked at them and saw they represented God to people. Now, there are plenty of people in the world who will point to the sins in the church and they'll be horrified by them. It's not good enough that we point and say, look, everyone's doing this. It's the same rates of bad things happening in other organizations. That's not good enough because if we represent God, we have to be held to higher standards and they're right to be horrified. Yeah, so th there's a great passage in, in Paul. He refers to himself and those with him as ambassadors for Christ. Yes. Uh, he, he really wants people uh, through his own voice, his voice which he uh, allows Christ to, to use, if you like, in him, yes. uh, to to speak into the church and bring people back to holiness, back to that life of Indeed, grace. Indeed, but in many cases, and I think this is what we're saying about the baptismal life, in many cases coming back to God uh, and restoring that, if you like, trust is, is starts with us restoring our relationship with God, but where our sin has damaged what people see of God in the world. Because if you're the Christian that everyone knows is a Christian and your friends look at you and you've sinned, if you've brought damage to God's name, then the repair that needs to happen has to happen in those relationships too. Um, and only God can Certainly. bring that grace. But remember that firstly, we're not able to do it without God's grace, so we need God's grace. But, but also don't forget that words very, very rarely are enough. When we have damaged a relationship with deeds, the only thing to, to restore that trust is deeds. That's an interesting point, yes, or some kind of atonement by way of um, offering. Yes, uh, often much, much so greater it's interesting. than the thing you actually did. It, what do you mean by that? Well, where's, where's that disproportionality? Because in, in my experience, it's always been fairly uh, token. We, we ask people to take on a small penance as representing the, the entirety of the damage that they've done through sin. I, I don't ever recall lying to my wife, but I know of many other relationships where that has happened. <laughs> um, but yes. when someone knows their partner has lied to them once, often it can take years of honesty before that harm is completely oh, healed. 
if sure. someone knew a priest or someone they knew was Catholic and, and was in authority in some way, a teacher or a bus driver or whatever, and they harmed them in some way, even to small ways, even just with words, that harm takes quite some time to restore. And often it never restores because they don't give you a chance because they're, they're so hurt they won't go near the place. My point is, is that if someone has been harmed or hurt by the church, even just with words, even just by name-calling or nastiness, it's going to take love for a long time before they can realize this is not what God wanted. It doesn't represent God's God for them. It doesn't represent yes. God's plan for them or the way God feels about them. Uh, that there is another way that God that they can see God through these other people. Right. It is interesting with that that there's a priest in of ours who who died. Right. He's a member of the Dominican community, and he he had only had two rebuffs on his door knocking through his parish, and one of them was a fellow who had been burnt by the church. I, I don't know in what way, uh, but it was an, a fresh face going to him and explaining that the glory of God and so forth. Once again, that made that fellow think about his life and, and bring him back to the church. Yes. That it, Sometimes it takes a bit of distance, a bit of time to heal, a bit of uh, circumspection and a fresh face, as I say, before uh, the person might return to the church. Sometimes. And some we often have to be aware of the fact that we're not the first person to talk to, to anyone about God. So when people react mm -hmm. when we talk about God, they're reacting to a, a, a long lifetime of conversations they may consciously or unconsciously have had with God along the way. But in terms of sin, we shouldn't expect people to just get over things. Sin does damage. And as we know in relationships, you can't just walk away. Um, saying sorry to God doesn't make it automatically right immediately, just in the same way that me saying sorry to my wife for, for not doing the dishes doesn't make the dishes done. You know, I need to actually get up and do them. <laughs> is, there, is there some place you're supposed to be at the moment, Peter? <laughs> yes, well, we, <laughs> I hope my wife doesn't listen to these, so that's good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, yes. the point is is that um, the sin does damage, but we, we often need God's help in re restoring the relationships. Now, the good news is, of course, is that the entirety of the church's power and the entirety of the church's purpose is about forgiveness, restoration, grace, which helps us build these relationships back with God and with other people. If anyone tells you differently, if anyone tries to to shout at you that you're a sinner when you're when you are already deciding I'd like to get right with God, then they're they're not talking God's word. Yes. And and so many people would encounter condemnation different ways. So there there is the shouting sometimes, although but but there's plenty of you know sideways glances, plenty of um, uh, exclusion from social life, all yes. kinds of little ways in which there's judgment that might be uh, disclosed to us. But the the end point of all this is exactly what you just yes. said that God's forgiveness is the only thing that matters. God's opinion of us, God's judgment of us, yeah. is the only thing that counts. We, we need to be a little bit careful, I think, just in our Christian life, uh, how we present ourselves, because sometimes we give the impression that we mm. we welcome a certain class of person or a certain manners or something like that. So when a young mum comes into our church and she's got unruly children, uh, which all children are, um, and all you know people are scowling at her for the making noise, then that that's sending a message that you're only allowed in here if you're capable of a kind of a, a sombre silence. 
or if 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 the <laughs> right right and don't join in the hymns while you're no, at it as well. No goodness gracious! Just make me, sure no. that you sit there and don't do anything at all. Yes, just line up for Holy Communion when the time. One is of the right. most glorious and joyful sounds I've ever heard is that um, in the middle of a liturgy, a, a child very loudly repeating a line, possibly five or six lines behind. Um, <laughs> trying desperately out of the joy of their heart to join in with the liturgy and, you know, messing up lines <laughs> and, and shouting them very loudly. It wasn't disturbing. I, I know one one little boy who, um, uh, when he saw the host at Mass, said, oh, there's God, <laughs> 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 which is better than any bell, I can tell you. Indeed. I asked my son once, where is God? And he pointed to the front and I said, how did you know? And he said, you're all facing that way. So oh, very you'd good. watch the human behaviour. Now, one of the things that we have to say before we finish on forgiveness and, and baptism is that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. And this okay. is, I say this with a heavy heart because we're, we're asking God to forgive us in the same way we forgive others. Mm. This is both terrifying and liberating in the sense that we, we attempt to pass on God's forgiveness because he has forgiven us for everything. We can forgive others for little things. Well, if as on my reading of the Lord's Prayer, it, it presumes that we have forgiven yes. others before we yes. ask God's it forgiveness. it does. Uh, so there's preparation to be done for praying. Indeed. Uh, in, in my understanding of it. Yeah. Um, at, Lord, forgive us for we have already forgiven others. Indeed. Uh, and in fact, it, it, of all of the clauses, petitions of the Lord's Prayer, it's the only one he takes time to explain. Uh, the others must have been in, clear enough mm. that he didn't have to worry about explaining what our Father might mean because, you know, to the people he's speaking to and through all history, you know, Christians know what a Father is, God the Father is. But, but what forgiveness of sins, especially how it might be dependent upon our forgiveness of others, that's, that's a very big thing. Unless you forgive, you will not be forgiven. Yes. To be clear, in case we get misunderstood, forgiveness doesn't mean letting people continue to do evil to us. Oh, so sure. forgiveness means to relinquish that that debt and that that hurt inside of us, which is damaging the relationships. Right. To let go of the resentment that might yeah, build up Yeah, because honestly, if someone cuts me off in traffic and I resent them all day, they don't care. The only thing my lack of forgiveness is hurting is me. And I need to let that go so I can heal. It's got nothing to do with them. So in that sense, forgiving, it, it would, if I knew them, restore our relationship. Uh, but mostly it's about stopping sin from poisoning me. Yes, and remembering how much we have been forgiven relative to what anybody might do to indeed, us. Indeed, indeed. Uh, we've always got more on our bill with God than we might have on another Indeed. person. Thankfully, God, as coming back to Benedict's quote, never be afraid to ask God for what he wants to give us. God wants to forgive us. He wants to restore us. He yes. wants us to have the best life possible. He wants that for us. So wonderful news is that if we ask for it, he'll give it. Probably is a good taste to wrap it up. That's it for this week's podcast. If today's discussion got you thinking or arguing or wanting to look for confession, let us know. You can subscribe to the podcast, uh, or rather, don't let us know. Go to the priest in the local parish. Amen. <laughs> you can join our conversation by joining Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or Discord, and write us a review on iTunes. This is a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast. We'll be back next week, but that's all for now. Thank you for listening to This Catholic Life.